is verses 73 through 80. And as you know, this is psalm is written around an acrostic motif, each stanza beginning with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Tonight, it is the Yod stanza, not Yoda. That's something different. But Yod, Y-O-D, some pronounce it actually even uh, today. Some pronounce it Y-U-D, Yud. But Yod, it's the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But the most important thing that you need to know about this letter is it is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's essentially a dot. Uh, Most of the time when we study it in Hebrew, it appears as an apostrophe, what we would kind of draw as an apostrophe. The yod makes a Y sound. It's the most frequently used Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It has a meaning. It, It can mean things like work or hands, and that comes out in this psalm, actually. Functions of the hand. It's the because of its modest size, it can represent the idea of humility, even wisdom. It's the first letter in Hebrew of that special name of God, Yahweh. It's that Y sound. It's that little apostrophe. In fact, this little small letter occurs twice in the name Yahweh. It's the letter that Jesus referred to when he said this in Matthew five. Remember this statement. Truly I say to you, in verse 18 of Matthew 5, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, King James was not even a jot or a tittle, that smallest letter, the jot, is this one, the yod. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's all accomplished. That that just reminds us of the integrity of God's word in the original manuscripts that God inspired. Even the smallest letter is inspired by God. Even the smallest letter is put in its place by God where he wants it in his word. So it is this little letter of the Hebrew alphabet that begins every verse in this stanza in the Hebrew. Now structurally, the stanza is quite complex. It exists in an introverted pattern. And we can confirm that by some parallelisms that can be found, both literary and conceptual parallelisms. So I want us to look at the verses of the psalm kind of with that in mind. Here's what I mean. If you start at the center of the psalm, you can work your way out to the edges. In other words, right in the very center, verse 76 and verse 77, they relate to one another. There are two synonyms in these two verses that represent the grace of God. There's one in each verse, so they sort of mirror one another. Uh, In this translation, it's loving kindness and compassion. That binds those two verses together in thought. You move outward one verse at a time toward the edges, and that brings you to verse 75 and verse 78. And both of those verses deal with the psalmist affliction and trial that he was going through, but from the standpoint of who's causing it, who's behind it. But there's a contrast there in those two verses. God's behind it, ultimately, we'll talk about that, but there are human persecutors behind it as well. There's a contrast there between the character and actions of God in all those trials and yet the pride and arrogance of the persecutors. You go outward one more step and you've got verse 74 and verse 79 and we find that in each verse you see that phrase, the ones who fear you, verse 71. Those who fear you, verse 79. 
those who fear you, that binds those together is the subject of the verbs there. Finally, we come to the beginning and the ending verses, 73 and 80, and they actually do relate to one another. Not at first, when you first read them necessarily, until you realize they both say something about the inner man, the deepest part of man, what he was praying for. Many of these requests are in a particular Hebrew form that makes it a, um, an indirect sort of command, but a command nonetheless. So with that structure in mind, you have these concentric circles of prayer requests, all related to this chronic experience with affliction. So we're going to outline it that way tonight. We're going to study it that way tonight. We're going to deal with the verses that way tonight. And as we do that, we're going to be looking for what we can learn from this psalmist because he's a good example to us. Get insight into the stanza, from the stanza, into how this man weathered the storms of his life, and we can learn from that. So there's four of these examples here tonight, since the eight verses are in four groups. Here's the first example he bequeaths to us in this stanza. Here's example number one, his pursuit of God's wisdom, his pursuit of God's wisdom. Now, we find here in this one the psalmist praying for God's thoughts to be his own thoughts. Or in a word, we'll see in the very first verse, verse 73, in a word, he prayed that divine wisdom, divine discernment would characterize his life. But in asking for that, he first affirms something about God. He wants to make something clear that he knew about God. He affirms something about God, and in doing that, affirms something, a fact about his own existence as a human being. Verse 73, your hands, God's hands, your hands made me and fashioned me. Now, that's creation language. So the psalmist is saying when it came to his own existence, he knew that God's hands had given him his his makeup, had given him his constitution. And the imagery of the Lord's hands is a way of speaking of God's power. You can use it to speak of God's power in general, but here in this context, it even is speaking specifically of his creative power. And the verb translated made there, your hands made me, is used in several psalms throughout the Psalter to talk about God when he created all things. There are psalms that use this word that he he made the heavens, he made the moon, he made the earth, he made uh, the seas, he made all that's in the sea. In various psalms it says that. In Psalm 100 and verse 3, it's the same word where it talks about the creation of man. Psalm 100 verse 3, it's he who made us and not we ourselves. But notice he adds this thought there, and he describes God's creation of man this way, he made me and fashioned me. That's a a different word. And that verb emphasizes establishing something. You can translate it that way, forming something. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 90. It comes up later, verse 90. You established the earth. It's the same same word as fashioned here in our verse. You established it. Back in Psalm 8, verse 3, it's translated ordained. The moon and the stars which you have ordained still means you fashioned them. Job 10, verse 8, your hands 
fashioned me. So all these creation ideas and terms the psalmist uses, and therefore it's obvious that he knew something about his own existence. He was not just the end result of, of, you know, blind forces of chance. To put it very bluntly in our language, he knew he was handmade. You know, when we're shopping and we see something like that, it's like, oh, it's handmade. I mean, look at that. It probably means it has maybe better quality. What's interesting, though, is when you do examine the Genesis record of creation, all those early days of creation, it keeps saying that God spoke things into existence, and he did. He just commanded things into existence, and they came into existence, except when it came to the making of man. He did more than just speak. He took clay, red clay, and fashioned man's body in a sense, by hand. And that creative act made man special, unique, different, set apart from the rest of creation. I like what the commentator Phillips says in summary of all that. He says, in a sense, we could say that God mass-produced the rest of the universe, but he made man with his own hands. The author understood that. And notice the use of the pronoun me in the, in the language here. It's actually emphasized. Your hands made me. So he's saying that it's not that God just made mankind in general. It's true he did. It's not that he just made Adam. He did. God is involved personally in the formation of each and every human life. You can say this. God made me. He fashioned me. Each one is a person. Each person is handmade. That'd be a great t-shirt. I'm handmade. And each one bears the image then of the maker, God. That's what's wrong with evolutionary theory and propaganda. It's a satanic myth. It's an insult to God. It's designed to bring man down, debase him, make him connected to animals. And here, Scripture tells us, no, God's connected to me. I mean, man's connected to me, God says. Back to our text, the point is that this man of God understood that God, in his infinite wisdom, not only made us, but he infinitely knows us better than we know ourselves He has overseen the very framing of every aspect of our being, our very personalities, our potentialities, and our capabilities, all handmade, which is why Jeremiah 1.5 says, God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So this author goes to that God, the one who has that kind of power, that kind of wisdom, and he prayed for this, verse 73, give me understanding. That's something internal. That little phrase, give me understanding, is found six times throughout this psalm, and it always means give me practical perception about real life. Especially it's used to talk about that in the midst of trials and affliction. 
I need your wisdom, God. You, the one who made me, who made all things, but fashioned me and made me the way I am, created my personality, my capabilities. I need your wisdom, Lord, in the midst of this trial. Do you know that's the very truth affirmed by James in James chapter 1 when it says in James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. That's said in the midst of a chapter or context dealing with trials and difficulty. Remember, that's the section that says, you know, count it all joy, you know, when you're in trials. In the middle of all that, ask for wisdom. Ask God who gives to all generously wisdom. So our author exemplified this kind of prayer in the midst of difficulties. When we're facing affliction, we should pray this way. God, give me wisdom. Give me discernment. God, you you made all things. You, You know all things, even intimately. I need your thoughts to be my thoughts in this affliction. As I go through this trial, I need to see the world the way you see it, God. I need to understand this trial the way you understand it. And the author wanted that wisdom to accomplish something specific in his life. Verse 73 again. He didn't say, give me the wisdom so I know how to get out of this thing. Show me the escape door. No, he prays for this wisdom, this internal discernment and wisdom that I'd learn more about your word that I may learn your commandments. Everything's going to keep coming back to that in this psalm. In the midst of that trial, he wanted to align his will with the will of God. Again, to put it differently, he wanted to grow internally to learn truth and wisdom and discernment in the depths of his being. And now the other verse at the end of the psalm, verse 80, connects with that thought. Again, he didn't want just external compliance and help. He wanted internal conformity to God's will. So he says it in the other, the bookend verse of the psalm, verse 80, may my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. Now, we've said this before, you know, the heart is the seat of the inner man. It summarizes the inner man. It's the, it's the volitional part of us, the rational part of us, the emotional seat, nucleus of our personality, it's our sense of responsibility all there. So the prayer for the heart to be blameless is a prayer that my heart, my soul, my inner man will be sound. And that comes when we are obedient to God's statutes. And that's one of several synonyms, as you know, to the word of God in the psalm, statutes. Our heart will be sound if we're obedient to God's statutes all the time, but certainly in the midst of difficult circumstance. So he certainly recognized an important life principle here that integrity of lifestyle only comes if, if the inner man, the heart, has integrity and wisdom and discernment. We need all that too. We need sound doctrine to reside in our hearts. It's not enough that our theology is correct. It needs to reside there soundly. We can have intellectual knowledge of divine truth, but the real purpose of Scripture has been missed if that's all we have. He wanted to be blameless in obedience of the statutes, and that results in not being ashamed. 
If all we have is the theological knowledge and it's not driving us to have a more sound heart and desire for obedience to the statutes, then we ought to be ashamed. So again, this author understood that obedience from a sincere heart was the antidote for shame. And when the heart is right, there's joy, there's freedom, there's contentment in the Lord. And for this writer, experiencing all that was what he longed for the most in the midst of the affliction and difficult circumstances, even if those circumstances never changed. God, give me wisdom. Second example he leaves for us, number two, his concern for God's people. So now we go back to verse 74. Second verse. May those who fear you see me and be glad. And to fear God is not to cower before him, it's to have a reverence in our heart for him, a high respect for him in our hearts, an awe of God in our hearts. This is a biblical way, one of the many biblical ways of referring to a true believers. True believers are those who fear the Lord. And so he says here, I, I wish that all true believers would be encouraged by my life and the example of my trust and obedience to the Word of God and my trust in the Word of God. In a word, this is concern about his testimony in the midst of his trial. He desired, even in the face of affliction, to be a testimony to other believers in the covenant family so that they would have increased joy. I mean, this is amazing. He he was not just preoccupied with his trial and his own affliction, his own personal problems, thinking of nobody else but himself. In the midst of his affliction, he thought of others, the needs of others. So what did he want, what did he know would be the greatest way to have that positive impact for others? Verse 74, because I wait for your word. May those who fear you see me and have joy seeing that I wait for your word. And that term means to put hope in the word. His hope was in God's word, not in his circumstances. That's what waiting means. He didn't just love God's word. He didn't just trust it and have faith in it. He he put his hope in it, the promises of the word. He knew that that's where joy comes from. He knew that worldly perspectives and opinions and insights, they don't ultimately bring true help and joy in somebody's life. That's only found in knowing and obeying scripture. So this is something that the unsaved worldly thinking person can't experience, this kind of hope. I mean, they, they, they try to wishfully think and fantasize about their life turning out good in some way, but it's all fantasy. They actually have a hopeless future outside of Christ. There's a great illustration by one commentator. He put it this way. He says, trying to find hope in worldly kind of fantasy and thinking and perspectives is like that person, that thirsty person who's going across the desert, you know, those old westerns, we used to see that, you know, the guy starts across the desert and, and, and he first he's riding his horse and then he finally, you know, gets off his horse and leads the horse and then he, the scene comes where he finally takes that last little drop of water and he throws the canteen away and then eventually he has to shoot the horse because it, it collapses. And then he's in the dirt, you know, groveling, the sand crawling, and he looks up ahead, and there's the answer to all of his problems, an oasis. But the problem is it's not real. 
It's called what? The mirage. That is a great illustration. The unsaved people are like that. I mean, here they are going through life like that, you know, hopeless. And they, they keep fantasizing about what answers are and how things are going to turn out. And it's all just a mirage. They're deceived. Not, not the ones who fear the Lord. Our hope is in the infallible word of God. So that was the burden of this man's heart. That his patience under pressure as he hoped in God's word would influence others in the family of faith to put their hope in God's word as well and have joy. And when we say God's word, obviously, just a side point, we mean not just any approach to God's word, handling it correctly. I say that because there are false teachers, you know, the health, wealth, and prosperity sort of teachers, that they're promising a lot of hope. It's a false hope that they proclaim. It's a false form of optimism that they're spreading, of of you getting all you need and money and possessions and all that kind of stuff. It's an optimism apart from accurately handling the Word of God. And therefore, that oasis that they're promising people, it's all a mirage. And we say, well, yes, okay, he's putting his trust in God's Word, but doesn't God, God's Word does promise some good things? Doesn't it promise things like this, that all things are going to work together for good? Yes, For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, the God-fearers, yes. But God defines what that process will look like and the good. The good might actually involve sickness along the way. It could involve the death of a loved one, someone we care about. It It could still involve financial loss. But yet, those whose hope is in the word of God can still have joy in their souls in the midst of all that, even if it continues to progress to what some would say is the worst. What's the worst? Death. So what's bad about that? For those who fear the Lord, it's to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Nothing's better than that. My point is not to be tried about circumstances, but no circumstance can prevent God from fulfilling his promises and bring about his will in our lives. That may very well include things that we didn't choose to happen. But in the end, it will become clear in all things how God used all things for his glory and our own growth And verse 79 fits with this thought that we've just been studying as well. Jump to 79. Again, there's the expression, may those who fear you turn to me. Again, this is concern for how his life during his trials impacted other believers. His genuine desire was that his own hope in God's word would rub off on them Those who fear the Lord, whom he also calls here in verse 79, those who know your testimonies. Another way to refer to believers. He calls believers this here because he desired that all believers would come to know God's testimonies even more. And then have even more hope in God's word. Why did he put it that way, though, those fear you, may they turn to me. Since he mentioned it like that, evidently, 
others were shunning him. And so it's, it's suggested that it was because he was being persecuted and some of his persecution would come from those who had power, earthly power. So he wasn't really safe to be around is the point, you know. Stay away from that guy, you know. I don't want to be, go to jail with him. So he's being avoided even by the Lord's people. That happened to Paul, by the way, too. Most people abandoned him when he was in prison. There are only a few souls who really even dared to hang around with Paul. He says this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 16, at his trial, nobody stood with him. 2 Timothy 4, 16, at my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. Evidently, it was something like that. So he says, Lord, I want them to turn to me. I want to enjoy fellowship with them, but so I can have the opportunity to impact them for good, that they can also experience the hope and the joy. What an example to us of caring so much about other believers during our own difficulties. It is an example that we should emulate today. Here's a third example for us. Number three is recognition of God's sovereignty. Verse 75, he knew that the Lord was the ultimate source of all this suffering. People don't want to say that, but it's a fact. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, Yahweh, I know your judgments are righteous. And judgments here means your decisions, your rulings, what you decide to do, your actions. All that you do, all your actions, what you've decided to carry out is always righteous or just. To say it more bluntly, I know God makes no mistakes. And that is true even when things seem to go wrong from our limited point of view. Many of God's dealings with us are designed to change us, to change our character, to make us more like his son. I read Romans 8 a while ago, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good. It's verse 29 that tells us what the good is, that we be conformed to the image of his son. God is, is doing that in his sovereign plan, even using trials and affliction. It's also the point of Hebrews 12 where it talks about the Lord's discipline. Hebrews 12 verses 10 and 11 makes the comparison to earthly fathers who, if they love their children, they will discipline them. It says that God is like that. He says in verse 10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So again, holiness, righteousness, there's a a purpose in God's sovereign plan. Great quote here by the commentator Phillips. God would not be faithful to us if he saw we needed some kind of affliction and withheld it from us. What kind of loving God would that be if he says, well, they need some trials. I love them so much, I'm going to give it to them. 
Nor would he be true to his character. If God simply let us alone, we would go our own careless ways. God is too loving to be unkind and too faithful to his own character to neglect our training. Back to our text. All this is what the psalmist understood. He embraced it that God was sovereign over his suffering. God was using it for righteous reasons, which is affirmed even more clearly in the next clause there, verse 75, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That word faithfulness here refers is one that refers to his steadfastness. He's trustworthy. In your trustworthiness, that's why you've afflicted me. This is a correct description of God. This is not exegeting our experiences and coming to the conclusion about something about God. It's looking at what God's Word says about about God. And He is faithful in every way to that description that's in the Bible. He's faithful to that description. And the point is that our author knew that whatever he was going through, whatever the Lord had chosen to use to correct him and to shape him and to direct him was righteous because God doesn't do this willy-nilly. He does not, in a capricious way, afflict his people. But there's verse 78 that goes with this. I know God's behind all this, and yet at the same time, God, who is sovereign over trials, all my trials, he's just, but I know that there are some humans involved in this persecution as well, and they're not just. So he adds the contrast in verse 78, may the arrogant be ashamed. So who's who's behind all these trials? Is it God or these arrogant persecutors? Yes. And they subvert me with a lie. In contrast to God, who's righteous and just, the human persecutors were full of pride and arrogance. And so in their pride, they subverted him, which means they, they were out to sabotage him with slander and lies. Consequently, for doing that, for wronging him without any legitimate cause, he reasons that they should be ashamed. Those two verses then remind us of that tension in Scripture, right? It's a tension we must embrace. On one hand, God in his sovereignty was using those arrogant persecutors Just like he's done elsewhere in Scripture, you see him using the nation of Assyria uh, in Isaiah chapter 10. You see him using the Chaldeans, like in Habakkuk. You see him using, uh, in the book of Esther, Haman. He understood all this, this author. And he knew that those human instruments behind his affliction were morally responsible, even though God was using them. And they deserved God's avenging justice. That's a tension that he understood. And we see that tension in Scripture concerning the death of Christ. One of the greatest examples to see that, to look at, to see that tension that we don't want to try to fix. We want it to be there because that's what God intends. The book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, is one of the clearest examples of that. Acts 2, 23. Peter's preaching to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, and he says, this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That's why it happened, the cross, the arrest and the cross. Yet you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. Both. 
You see it again in Acts 4, verse 27 and 28. It said, all these were gathered against Jesus. You know, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, they're all gathered against your anointed Jesus, verse 28 of Acts 4, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined for them to occur, to do. That tension has always existed, even back when the psalmist lived, and he didn't try to fight it. And it didn't cause him to doubt God's word. He didn't didn't come away from that going, I just don't know about Scripture then. There's things I don't understand. It didn't cause him to doubt God's word. Even in the midst of his difficult circumstances and that tension, he still was focused on truth. Verse 78 continues. But I shall meditate on your precepts. God's sovereign. People are behind it. How's that all work out? I don't know. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to devote myself to the word of God and meditate on it. I will, I shall, it's in a form that means continuous activity. I'm going to make this the characteristic of my life, to meditate on your precepts. And the word meditate means to ponder, contemplate. It even has the idea of praying your precepts. So there's a sense of of devotion in this word as I meditate on it. What a contrast in the two types of people. You've got the persecutors ruled by their pride, You've got this man receiving the persecution and he's ruled by God's word. You've got the ones ruled by pride and they're, they're doing all these wicked things and, and dealing perversely with this godly man and the godly man who's ruled by the word waits patiently, keeps putting his hope in God's word. No wonder he's such a good example for us. It's true of this fourth and final example as well, this great example that he leaves for us. And this is the bullseye of the stanza, right? Verses 76 and 77. Number four, his dependence on God's help. What a great example he is to that. Verse 76, you see this first of all, he prays this, oh, may your loving kindness comfort me. I mean, his trial was difficult. It wasn't easy. I need help. And this term translated loving kindness is that famous Hebrew word hesed. Such an important Hebrew word. It it points to this aspect of God's grace that means his grace that he bestows to his people is something rational, it's something volitional, It, it is done in his faithfulness to his people and his loyalty to his people. It's all wrapped up in that word hesed. So sometimes we just simplify it. It says it means his loyal love to his people. His loyal love. It's the loyal love of a heavenly father. So he's turning to the heavenly father and saying, I I need that fatherly type of consolation here. That's what I so desperately need. A father's comfort. And the pagans of his day, they they couldn't turn to their religions and find this kind of fatherly comfort. You're not going to see that in in those who worshipped Moloch or Dagon, pagan gods. There's no mention of fatherly comfort in those kind of religions. Frankly, follow the false religions in history. You You don't speak of this kind of fatherly comfort being offered in Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and so forth. And frankly... You don't find it in the heresy of Roman Catholicism either. I mean, what kind of comfort is found in a theology 
that says when you die, Christ's atonement for your sins wasn't enough. There's still going to have to be some suffering and purgatory that you'll have to go through for a while. You've got to atone because there's a residue of some sin there. That's what Rome tells people to expect after death. There's a time of fire and flame to get rid of the residue. How long? Well, no one can say how long. So they offer prayers for people after they've died. That God would get them out of purgatory and saints would help. And masses are said for their souls. And in history, you can find money being given to shorten their time in purgatory. You see that when you go to Rome where they would... Do, you can do certain things in the city. There's, I remember one time I went inside the Colosseum and there was a place there that if you, I forgot what it was you had to do, but you could, if you did it, you'd get you know, 50 years off of purgatory for one of your loved ones or something. How sad and tragic. It's a false religion. Lump it in with the worship of Moloch and Dagon. This author wanted nothing like that. He, he didn't want to be involved in a false religion because there's no fatherly comfort. So he, he casts himself into the arms of a heavenly father who does show loving kindness. And this disciple knew how God gave comfort, verse 76. It's comfort according to your word to your servant. He keeps coming back to the glory of the word. God had promised this kind of comfort and consolation for his people. He's promised that in his word. So the psalmist knew that promise was there. The psalmist had experienced this in the past. He knew God would be faithful as his heavenly father, loyal to his promises again. And yet, verse 77 adds another dimension to what he was seeking. an emotional dimension. In a sense, what he's yearning for in verse 77 is a motherly form of tender care as well. Fatherly comfort, a mother's tender care. Verse 77, may your compassion come to me. You could translate that word mercy. One translation puts it tender mercies. The root behind it means a very deep love, usually of a superior forward to, a, to an inferior, so it's, it conveys the idea of a pity and therefore mercy, this deep inward feeling of mercy. Jeremiah says this so appropriately about this kind of compassion from the Lord, Lamentations 3.32, he will have compassion, mercy, pity according to his abundant loving kindness. So this psalmist wasn't just wanting any kind of comfort, any kind of kindness. He wanted a merciful kind of compassion and kindness. And for a reason, verse 77, that I may live. He was absolutely convinced that when God gave him this consolation or comfort and this this fatherly comfort and this motherly tender compassion that he would be revitalized in the midst of his affliction so that even in the trial, he would be enjoying life to all its fullness. And once again, verse 77, it's predictable. 
He knew that kind of life is going to go hand in hand with something, a commitment to the word. So he adds, because your law is my delight. You just can't get away from saying those kind of things. So here he is in the midst of a huge storm, stormy seas, as one author put it, but he had an anchor that was gripped to this great grace, this great kindness and consolation and mercy that comes from God to his people. I'm sure glad God's like that. I mean, what if, what if, what if he wasn't? I mean, what if he's the opposite? What if he's like us sometimes with people, you know? I'm sorry. You've had enough chances. I don't need you in my life. What, what if he was a God of incredible cruelty, totally indifferent? I mean, I, I suppose you could say he has the right to say, look, let's go back to that thing, you know, at the beginning. I made you handmade. I, I made you that way and put my image upon you. I even put you in a flawless environment, met all your needs. Hardly restricted you at all, really just a, a, along one line of restriction. That's what he told Adam and Eve, you know. I even gave you the warnings of what would happen. So... You know what? Just live with the consequences then that I warned you about. You've made your bed, now lie in it. I'm glad God's not like that. There'd be no salvation, there'd be no help, there'd be no consolation, no comfort, no heaven. We'd be haunted by horror and hopelessness every day of our lives. But praise the Lord. He's revealed in Scripture as a God of merciful kindness toward his people, a God of tender mercies. We can pray like this, and we should. In the midst of our trials, we should pray all these prayers. We should pray for wisdom so that I, I'm going through this trial the wisest way with discernment. And Lord, I pray that while I go through this trial, I pray that you would use my life as a testimony to other people. Don't let me forget the needs of others. Don't let me become self-focused. And God, I, I do recognize that you are a sovereign God over everything. I can't connect all the dots, but I know your character. Everything you do is just and righteous. Can't say that about anybody else. And that's why I come to you for the help I need. I desperately need comfort right now. My soul is in turmoil. I need mercy, tender mercies. Pray that way in the midst of your trials. Well, there's a pop quiz now after all this. You know, put up all your papers, your pencils, you know, put them under your desk, get out one sheet of paper. Number two, lead pencil. Boy, I'm old. Number two, lead pencil. What is that? Here's, here's quiz question number one. Why is concern for others during a time of trial so important for us? 
Actually, it's not a written exam. It's an oral exam. This is not a rhetorical question. This is a real question. I'm looking for somebody to raise their hand. Yes, sir, right there, first one. Why is it so hard? That, that's the importance of it right there. Yeah, Ryan? People are watching us. We should care about that. If we focus on the Lord during our trial, that's going to help us. I mean, being self-focused is the most miserable kind of way to live. So, yeah, it helps us to deal with the challenges and difficulties of life. We make our problems worse by focusing on our problems and dwelling on them. And I tell people this sometimes, you know, when you wake up in the middle of the night, pray about your problem. But don't just pray about your problem. Pray about it and get off of it. Don't keep just beating the thing to death. Pray about it and then pray for me. I'm going through trials. Pray for the other elders. Pray for people in your care group. And if that burden of your own trial is still there, go back to it. Pray about it again. It's okay. But then get off of it. Pray for some other people. Now, I've said this before. I find that it's when I'm praying for all of you that I go back to sleep. So thank you for that. <laughs> and since people are watching us, there's a danger here. We're harming others if we're not careful. I mean, we can inflict harm in other people's lives. It's pretty important. Question number two. It's a tough subject, sovereignty of God, right? Many people struggle with the doctrine of God's complete sovereignty. So why... Is the doctrine of God's complete sovereignty even more difficult for people? It's hard enough. Why is it more difficult when it comes to the subject of suffering? John? Yeah, good. So it's hard because we go into this thing starting to think about God wrongly. We start defining things about God wrongly, like His grace. We had a preconceived definition of what His grace ought to mean. So we have these expectations. So that's, that's part of it, absolutely. Anybody else want to add to that? Yeah, right here. This is the great dilemma of, of, man, of history. We can't imagine a good God causing pain, allowing pain. I mean, that's that $64,000 question that people like to throw in our face. Why does a good God allow suffering? He was good, 
my loved one wouldn't be in the hospital right now suffering. I wouldn't have gone through this terrible diagnosis and disease state. I wouldn't have had every dream I possibly could have pursued dashed. Yeah. Again, I think it goes back to the same thing. Then we, it's, a, it's a wrong understanding of God. It's the result of defining God based upon our own sort of logical reasoning ability. We have to remember our reasoning ability is not perfect. It's, it's impacted by the fall. There is no aspect of us that's not impacted by the fall. Our thinking, our reasoning, we do have reasoning ability. We're made in God's image. He reasons. We reason. Totally different than animals. I mean, animals are instinctual. We're different than that. As much as we would like to impose that upon our dear Fluffy at home, he's not. He's instinctual. And so we start reasoning about God based upon our own understanding. And so then our, our reasoning about God starts missing then some of his attributes. We, 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 we leave off some of his attributes and only affirm some of them, or we, we question some of his attributes, or we, we misdefine them. So we have formed a God based upon our own reasoning ability, how he ought to be. And I sometimes think it's really what we've done in our wrong thinking about God We've just created him to be a better version of us. Okay, we don't want him to be exactly like us, but a good version of me, you know, like that. He's totally different from that. Isaiah 55, my thoughts, my reasonings are different than yours, higher. Anybody want to add to that? Why it's hard in the midst of trials? Yeah. The world has a totally upside-down perspective. Good, good point. The world, not only is our own reasoning faulty, but we're being conditioned and told some lies all the time. We deserve to be happy. That's one of the messages of the world. We deserve to be happy. You can have it all. I mean, just look at all the commercials on TV. If you can still stand to watch them, you know, with all the agenda stuff. We're promised it, like you said, you know, we, 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 in our world, especially Western culture, we have stood in line too long at the grocery store. We deserve something different than this. They need to move faster. I was thinking that yesterday at Walmart, actually. <laughs> this is the self, they call that area, you know, at each end of Walmart, where I, the one I go to is that, what do you call it? Self-checkout. There are some people that need training. Okay, okay. I, I'm sorry. It's the same people, I think, that need training on traffic circles. But nevertheless, it's another issue. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, I want to breeze through this thing. I've got things to do. But the world tells us that we do deserve something better than this. We deserve everything working out. We deserve to have it all. 
And uh, commercials trying to sell us that, I mean, stuff on Instagram. I, I, I've only discovered, I discovered this thing called Instagram about two months ago or so, three months ago. And uh, boy, it's a black hole. You can go down all these reels, all these little videos that keep one after another, after another, another. And I figured out something. They know you. They track you or something. Because if you click on one cat video, oh, there's going to be a bunch of cat videos now. And if you click on one electric guitar solo, oh, there's a bunch of guitar solos. Okay. But also there's advertisements in there. So I bought a couple of things just recently from Instagram. Uh, sometimes I don't do it anymore. I've, I've learned to handle my sleeplessness differently, but a few years, just two or three years back, you know, because I struggle so much with sleep, I would many times just go ahead and get up and go down and, and uh, try to study, but, but you're, you're too tired to study, to read anything seriously, but you can't go to sleep, you know, so turn on something, and there's infomercials. I have bought things at th 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, because I, I see this, and I go, I need this. I need this thing right here. My wife needs this. This is a Christmas present is what this is. Okay. So here we're conditioned with that all the time. Self-gratification now. And God comes along and does things that don't fit the plan, what the world tells us. I do think that is part of it. Third question. By the way, let me throw in a verse about that one. It's 1 Peter 4.19. I think it's just a great verse to remember. 1 Peter 4.19. Uh, those who suffer according to the will of God. That little phrase right there. We're suffering according to the will of God. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall do what? Well, the world would say, well, you need to tell God that's wrong. You know, you need to show God what your expectations were, how your life ought to turn out. I've got it all planned out. God, you're not cooperating. I can help you, God. Complain, grumble. Those who suffer according to the will of God should question God's character, should cast doubt upon his attributes. No. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. There's the, where the rubber meets the road, right there in our daily lives. Can we rest in that? Are we willing to humble ourselves and say that his way is right, even if I connect, cannot connect all the dots? And I'm going to entrust myself to my faithful creator in doing what is right even if it means I don't come to understand it until I'm in his presence. I mean, that is, that's what it means to fear the Lord, by the way, you know, and we're called God-fearers. I was reading in the Psalms the other day, and it must have been on the 7th because it was Psalm 67, and I was thinking about this psalm 119, though, teaching tonight, because I knew those two verses were in there. May those who fear the Lord see my life and, and be encouraged and have joy. The psalmist in Psalm 67 also said something very similar. 
He says it to those who fear God. Come, come and hear all who fear God. And I will tell of what he has done for my soul. What a great thought. Same, same way the psalmist was thinking in our psalm. Come, all you who fear the Lord, I want to tell you, I've been where you have been, but I've tasted the Lord's goodness. I've seen him be faithful. I've learned the rest that comes when you really do hope in his word and you humble yourself to say, I actually don't know what's best. I don't see everything. God, you're the one who sees everything. You define reality because you see the big picture. You're both inside our frame of reference and outside our frame of reference all at the same time. Only you, God, are like that. And I'm going to humble myself and trust that what you're doing is right. That is our testimony to the world. And the more we testify to that, the more flack we're going to get. Last question on the exam. Oh, no, it's not. Question three. There's four questions. So each one of these are worth 25 points. Question number three, how is God glorified by our expressions of dependency? He, he, he casts himself upon the Lord. So how, why does that glorify God? Why does God want us to do that? Why does he care? Yeah. We glorify him in all those ways by casting ourselves upon him. We glorify him by submission to him and expressing our need, our dependency on him. All of that glorifies him, which means every time we are at our wit's end and can only cry out for mercy and help, that's a good place. That actually brings glory to the Lord. He likes that. And those who don't know God, those who aren't the God-fearers, they would even twist twist that, what I've just said. Yeah, your God is a self-focused, self-loving, you know, narcissist. He wants everything to be about him. He does. And he deserves to think that way because everything about him is good and right and just. And everything he does is right, even if we don't see it. So every time we express our dependency upon him and ask for his help, we're, we're in a sense, even just begging for help, that in a sense is a, is a major glorifying of the Lord of that moment. It's saying that we don't have the answers and we need him and we are not self-sufficient. And that takes humility. We want to be self-sufficient. Back to the world, the world tells us to be self-sufficient. Think about number one. I mean, look out for yourself. You know, you deserve this, all that. Last question. How does expressing weakness to the Lord help us? How does it help us? How does it help you if you do that? Good, someone else. Couldn't find. I was looking for lips moving, and I'm, I'm looking over here, and nobody's lips are moving. Hang on, but I know the voice. I know that voice. Where is it? Okay, it's a little higher. Okay, start over.
we, we have to confront our sin in order to express our weakness because we think we should be strong and weakness is bad. Okay, it's a bad thing. And we don't like that in our pride. So all of that is sin. So it's back to that issue of humility. It, it, we're actually better off when we're humble. Okay, we are helped to be humble. Repentance is a, is a wonderful thing, you know. Confession and repentance actually puts us in a better place. So when we've confessed our sin, admitted our weakness, we haven't put ourselves in a very more vulnerable place. I think maybe some people fear that or something, you know, that if I if I really come to grips with my weakness, I, I don't want to face that. I don't want to. I don't want to deal with how weak I really am. I should be better than this. We, we fear that. What's going to happen then? What will people think of us? It's all so upside down, isn't it? The reality of it is that's the best place to be. And our souls are helped. We have rest. We finally come to that place. I mean, you know, I, I've, heard, I've heard that said. I've said it. I've felt it. And other people have told me that, you know, I'm so glad to finally confess this. You know, it's a burden. And so when we confess our weakness, that, that not only glorifies God, but it does help us. And I think a verse I can leave you with on that is 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul is talking about his own thorn in the flesh. And... Uh, at the end of that section, you know, when in 2 Corinthians 12, where he said, I prayed that God would remove the thorn, you know, and God's answer was no, but I'm going to give you grace and consolation and comfort, you know, God's grace. Then he makes this great statement in verses 9 and 10 of 2 Corinthians 12. So God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. It's when you're at your weakest point, now that's a good place to be for God to work in your life and work through your life and to change you. The power is perfecting weakness. Most gladly, Paul says, most, glad, most gladly then. I'd rather boast about my weaknesses. He had come to really get the point. It's okay. I can boast about my weaknesses because when I do that, the power of Christ dwells in me. That's a good thing. Therefore, I'm well content. And the Greek there literally means I take pleasure in. Weaknesses, that means physical ailments, insults, what other people say about me and hurt me, distresses, having situations in life where I don't have all my needs met, persecutions, what other people do to me because of my stand for truth, and difficulties, just a broad general word that catches everything that's not in those other four. I'm well content, take pleasure in those things, for Christ's sake, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So the end result is it helps us to be stronger, to be weak, and express that to the Lord. We're going to sing a final song here, but let's pray for ourselves. Father, we, we need help with all this. So we do pray like the psalmist prayed for that kind of help, but I pray for myself, I pray for each of us here that it would not be a just a theological exercise, but we would make all these things real in our lives in practical ways. I do pray for anyone here who can't say, I, 
I have come to cast myself upon Christ and to admit my need, that I need forgiveness of my sin. I need a Savior. I surrender. I give up. Bring him to that wonderful place of weakness and humility. In Christ's name, amen.